All right, 2 Peter chapter 1. Let's just pray together as we begin our time this morning once again. Father, we are dependent upon you. We know that. We understand that. And yet at times we fail to recognize it as we open your word. Sometimes we think it's according to our own wisdom and our own thinking and our own thoughts. And yet we know that it is only because of your grace, your mercy, the power of the Spirit, the illumination of the Spirit in our mind and our hearts as Christians to actually understand the truth that is before us. Certainly the words are words that we understand by way of the language you have given us, and yet the depth and the reality of the truth of it, the impact, the intent, the implications of it all are only understood by those who know Jesus Christ. And so we thank you for that. And so we ask that you would use these things in our minds and our hearts to change us, to modify our lives as we walk in obedience to you, that we might look more like Christ, that we might be a greater picture of Christ to a dying world, so that others would see Christ in us, and that your name would be lifted up and honored in all things. And so we ask your blessing upon our time in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we've almost come to a close of our study of chapter 1 of Second Peter. And, and therefore, it's good for us, I think, to give a quick review of what we've heard and learned, at least up to this point. You remember that Peter is writing to Christians, much like 1 Peter, he's writing to those, he says in verse 1, those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. Those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. We know from that statement that he is not implying that there are multiple kinds of saving faith. He is not implying by his words as he writes to these people that that he came to know Jesus Christ by a certain kind of faith and they have one that's in like manner like his and there's all these kinds of faith out there. He isn't saying that a person can be saved by just having a faith in anything and that he's writing to those people who have one like that. It's not what Peter is saying at all. No, he's simply saying that he's writing to true Christians. True Christians to those who have a faith in Jesus Christ, which comes through the righteousness of our God and Savior, who is Jesus Christ. You notice that in verse 1, that is an important foundation for us to start on, because the reality is he is writing to strengthen faith. Strengthen believers' faith, not to just simply write pithy little statements about moralistic life. He's writing to those who know Jesus Christ. And there is no other kind of saving faith other than in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to know God as God intended Himself to be known by those who know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so we know that Peter is writing to Christians. We know he's writing to Christians who are like us. Even though we are separated by such a gap of time in history that has gone by, he's writing to Christians like us. Christians who live in a world that is full of false narratives about life. Christians who live in a world where the information reality that comes at us at breakneck speed is telling us all kinds of things about what life is and what life is about and about morality and about the truth and the validity of whether what we read in the scriptures is even true. And they're calling that into doubt. These are Christians just like us. They're being challenged by those who do not have a faith like ours. They're being challenged by those who do not know the truth. And they're being challenged about the truth. And for many of them, the danger is that their faith is being weakened. Their faith is being undermined. It's, it's being, it's being um, challenged to such an extent that they are wondering if what they believe is actually true. 
It's not as if they're losing their salvation. We understand what the scriptures teach. We understand that no one can lose their salvation. Why? Because we didn't get ourselves into it. It's God who drew us to himself. It's God who gave us the gospel. It's God who gave us the faith to exercise in Jesus Christ. It is God who secures us in that faith. Jesus himself said that nothing can snatch us from the Father's hand. So there aren't, we're not talking about anyone losing their salvation by being weakened in the faith. That can't happen. But these are ones who are just simply struggling with certainty. Struggling with certainty. Struggling with the validity of it. The, the fact, the certainty of what we believe is constantly being questioned. It's being questioned by the world around us. And if we're not living by our faith, if we don't understand what God has done for us by way of salvation, if we as Christians neglect to continually remind ourselves of the basic truths involved in our salvation, and the, the most important of them all is primarily who God is, if we don't remind ourselves of these kinds of things that we are told in the first chapter and particularly the first four verses, then our faith can be unstable. Our faith can waver in this reality of certainty. Peter doesn't want that to happen. And I would go so far as to say, in fact, God through Peter doesn't want that to happen for us. Remember what Jesus said to Peter on the night that he was arrested in Luke chapter 22 and verse 31. Here's what Jesus said to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you. Why? So that he might sift you like wheat, Peter. Satan demanded to have you so that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you. What a miraculous statement that is. God incarnate saying to one of his creation, I've prayed for you. I've prayed that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. In a wider sense, this is what Peter is doing. Peter is fulfilling that command from the Lord Jesus Christ on the night that he actually betrayed Christ three times. Denied him, I should say. Betrayal is probably too strong of a word there. Denied him three times. In a wider sense, Peter is fulfilling the command of Jesus there in Luke 22. He is strengthening his brothers and sisters in Christ. And so in order to strengthen our faith so that we not, might not be weakened in our faith through the constant onslaught of challenges from the world around us and false religions that are out there and saying all that they say about what it means to know God, false information that flies at us in our day from anything from what we are living in right now to every other kind of thing that the world tells us. In order to strengthen us in our faith, he has reminded us of what God has done for us in our salvation. We remember that back in verses 1 to 4. It says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Why? Because his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. How? Through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. And it's by those that he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises in order that by them you might become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. So Peter's telling us that God's grace and peace is multiplied to us through knowing God, through having a relationship with God, through being called to Him by faith. God has, by His divine power, given us comprehensively 
everything necessary, all the tools we need for living life here and now, and living it in a godly way, in a Christ-honoring way, we are in fact partakers of the divine nature. We know these things. We as Christians understand this. We've embraced this. And we've embraced the truth of it because of who God is by His very nature. And therefore, we live by that faith in all of life, every aspect of life. And when we do, Paul says our lives are useful, they're, they're fruitful. If these qualities, this faith being lived out with diligence in all these areas of life that, you, that we walk through, if these qualities are yours, verse 8, and are increasing, you're useful and you're fruitful because of the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that's in you. God has designed Christian living in such a way that we grow in our faith when we live by our faith. We grow in our trust of God and our entrustment of Him in aspects of life when we walk by trust in Him. That's how God's designed it. That's how the Christian life is lived. And when we understand what God has done for us and we live by the faith that He has given to us, then we understand our security lies in Him and in His power, and nothing can change that. Nothing. There's no more secure place in the kingdom of God. Nothing, when we understand that, nothing causes our faith to stumble. In fact, that's exactly what he says. Verse 10, therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, because as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. In other words, your faith will never get to the place where you're in such a condition that you doubt the certainty of what God said. Because it's based upon the very character and nature of God, what God has done for you. But when we grasp the foundational truths that we have already heard and learned here in chapter 1, nothing should be able to move us off that secure ground. And not only that, not only that, that should be good enough. That should be all that we need to hear. There could be a big period there and we move on to chapter 2 and yet Peter seems to realize that he needs to go on a little bit about this certainty and he's showing us that God has given us proof of the validity of what we believe. Proof of the validity of what we believe. He's given us both eyewitness testimony of the truth, which was confirmed by God in the voice of God on the mountain, in which God revealed his son Jesus Christ in all of his glory. And he has also given us the scriptures. And this is where we're going to spend our time this morning. Verses 19 through 21. 19 through 21. Notice how Peter introduces this to us. As he links it with what we heard last week. He says, and so we have the prophetic word made more sure. To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. But know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Now, I trust you remember what we heard last Lord's Day, that when it comes to us as Christians giving a defense, giving a, a remember I said this is an apologetic, a, a defense of our faith, a defense for why we believe what we believe, there are two pieces on which each and every one of us stand. One piece is the eyewitness testimony of the apostles, and the second piece that God has given us is the Scriptures themselves. 
the verses before us this morning, we are looking at that second piece. We looked at the eyewitness testimony last time. What is our defense? Well, first, it's the eyewitness testimony of those who were there. There were eyewitnesses who, who testified to the fact that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. In fact, the Apostle Peter does this even in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, when he says, I'm delivering to you as of first importance the gospel. And he says, Jesus Christ died according to the scriptures. Paul is saying, listen, I'm telling you based upon the reality of what the scriptures said to be true. Jesus Christ died and was buried and rose from the dead according to the scriptures. This is the proof that even the apostle Peter uses, or the apostle Paul. And Peter says here in verse 16, For we did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says in verse 19, We have the prophetic word made more sure, which you do well to pay attention to as a lamp shining in a dark place. What does he mean by all of that? Well, he certainly desires to comfort us. He wants to comfort us who are Christians who are being challenged in every way so that we will not stumble when we are challenged in our faith, that we will be resolute in our conviction as to the certainty of what is said because of who said it, that no one will be able to cause us to stumble. But what does he mean when he says we have the prophetic word made more sure? In other words, the, the fulfillment is both a testimony and, or, or is, a, the, is a fulfillment of the testimony of the unchangeableness of God, that God does what He says because not only did He give the prophecy through the prophets, as we'll see in a moment, but graciously He lets us see the fulfillment of the prophecy through the eyewitness testimony of others. So these are the two realities. One, Peter saying, look, we didn't follow cleverly things. We saw it. We were there. That's the eyewitness testimony. He says, we have the prophecy that was talked about in reference to the very things we saw made more sure. How? Not by what we saw, but by what was said. In other words, God solidifies the reality of his prophetic word through fulfilling exactly what he said in time. Let me say that again. God solidifies the reality of his prophetic word by doing just that in time. That's what Peter is saying in reference to Jesus and his transfiguration on the mountain. Peter is saying that what were prophecies about the coming of Jesus Christ hundreds of years before through the prophets of the Old Testament, what was said by the prophets in the Old Testament times hundreds of years before Jesus ever came on the scene actually has come to pass in Jesus Christ and we saw it. We saw it. And so we have the spoken prophecy made more sure through God fulfilling it in time. It was just as true when God said it before it ever happened. It was just as valid when God said it, but by God's graciousness, He has shown us the validity of it through actually carrying it out, doing it. And so listen, beloved, God is worthy to be believed in all that he has said to man, every word, every statement, every jot and tittle that you find in the scriptures is to believe, be believed simply because it comes to us on the authority of who God is. And yet, yet, God has chosen in his grace and mercy to show his word to be, to be even more solid than that by actually doing what he said. 
And therefore we can say that you can only understand the Old Testament as you look at it through Christ. Because it points to Christ. He is the fulfillment of, and he is the intent of every Old Testament prophecy. Christ is the fulfillment and intent of every Old Testament prophecy. So we understand the Old Testament when we look at it with the eyes of faith in light of the fulfillment of what God said would happen. Everything in the Old Testament points to Christ and the fact that he was to come. This is what Peter is pointing at. Says we have the prophetic word made more sure. This is what he's pointing at. All the promises of God are being fulfilled in and through Christ. It's in him we have prophecy made more sure. See, he's the, he's the end of that statement. The reason we have prophecy made more sure is because of Christ. We have Christ. Therefore, Peter tells us this is the nature of Scripture itself. This is the very nature of the, of the Word of God that you have in your laps right now. Notice how he puts it here in verse 20 and 21. Notice what he says, right? But know this first of all. This is about the nature of Scripture. Okay? The fulfillment of Scripture, the fulfillment of the prophecy of Scripture is Christ. And we have the prophecy made more sure in Christ. It's all about Christ. It all points to Christ. Whether you're from the Old Testament pointing to Christ or the New Testament which reveals Christ. It's all about Christ. And Peter says this is the nature of the Scriptures. Know this first of all that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. But men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Now notice, Peter says, know this first of all. Know this first of all. Okay, Peter says, okay, you want to pay attention to this. You need to pay attention to this. Don't let this slide by you. Don't let you... Don't, don't let something else undermine this. This is of first importance for you when it comes to the truth of Scripture. That no prophecy of Scripture, you can stop right there for a minute. No prophecy of Scripture. Let's not miss the phraseology. Let's not miss the wording that Peter is using here. Prophecy is part of Scripture. Don't separate that out as some other entity. Prophecy is part of Scripture. So you say, well, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense to me. I never have thought of it like that. Yeah, but there are those who do. They take all the prophecy and separate it out as if it's some entity over here apart from Scripture, as if it has no relationship to it, that it's a separate thing, that God gave us the Scriptures, but He gave us prophecy. No, prophecy is part of Scripture. You notice that. Know this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture. In other words, it isn't a separate thing. You know what that means? That every doctrine of Scripture then is related to every other doctrine of Scripture. That means the doctrine of salvation is just as linked and, 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 and tied to the doctrine of end times as anything else. It isn't a secondary thing. It isn't a subordinate thing over here. And the doctrine of God is over here, and the doctrine of men is over here, and the doctrine of the Holy Spirit's over here, and the doctrine of salvation's over here, and the doctrine of prophecy, yeah, that comes in later, but it really has no link to that. No, they are all linked. And they affect how you view every one of them if you isolate one separate from the others. Prophecy is not a separate thing. It's clear here, as it was as clear in 2 Timothy 3 that I read this morning, that it is part of the Scriptures. All Scripture is inspired by God. Paul wasn't talking about prophecy as a part that's out here, and that's not inspired by God. No, no. All Scripture is inspired by God. 
all part of the scriptures. And so Peter continues to say, notice in verse 20, know this first of all, that no prophecy of scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. What do you mean, Peter? One's own interpretation. We hear a lot about interpretation today. People say, well, that's your interpretation. And over the years, there have been several things that have been given as to how this phrase is to be read. One is the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church stands up and says about this phrase, and some of you who were part of the Catholic Church know this because you heard it from time to time. They teach that the phrase means that only the church can tell you what a particular passage means. That you can't understand the passage at all. It's not your own interpretation. You have to come to the church. You have to listen to the Pope. You have to listen to the hierarchy of the church in order to find an understanding of what the Bible means by what it says. They say that's what this passage means when it says it's not a matter of one's own interpretation. Another view of this phrase is to say that it means that a person can only interpret an individual prophecy in light of all prophecy. In other words, every little individual prophecy can only be seen through the light of all prophecy that the Scriptures give us. There's no prophecy of its own interpretation, they say. In other words, they're indicating that what Peter is saying is you can't do that. You can't isolate a prophecy out and look at it in its own self. That all prophecy has to be looked at when you look at one because not one's own prophecy can be seen as its own interpretation. Someone else has gone so far as to say that this means that prophets themselves were not capable of knowing what they were saying. That the prophets didn't even know what they were prophesying when they were prophesying these things. In fact, they would even point to, doesn't Peter acknowledge that in his first epistle? When he says that, that the prophets were writing and looking to the one that they were writing about. They, they didn't know who they were writing about. They were even looking to that. And since that's what Peter said there, isn't that therefore to say that this means just that, that no prophecy is of any private interpretation, that the prophets themselves didn't even know what they were writing? Now, except for the Catholic Church, there's some truth in the other two. There's a piece of truth that Satan often does, gets very close to the truth, but that's not what Peter means. The answer to the question is no. No, that's not what he's saying. Why? Because you, you can't read verse 20 without verse 21. Peter didn't end at verse 20. He gave verse 21, which is a continuation. In fact, the word at the beginning of verse 21, the word for, clearly shows us that it could actually be translated because. That's a viable translation of the Greek word gar. Could be because. And so, no prophecy of Scripture is of one's interpretation because. In other words, here's the reason why it's not. Here's why it can't be of one's own interpretation. And that is simply to say that verse 21 answers verse 20. By the way, the original word that is translated here for interpretation actually comes from the root word that means to determine or determination. And so the verse ought to read, no prophecy of Scripture is born from one's own determination or from them being the origin. That's the idea. No prophecy of Scripture is born from that person being the origin of that prophecy. Why? Because no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. You notice it doesn't even give a hint at the reality that there might be some out there that were born by the act of human will. No, he says no prophecy, and he means no true prophecy. Because even in chapter 2 and verse 1, he's going to say, but false prophets also arose among the people. Well, they were false prophets because they were telling false prophecies. 
So in verse 21, when he says for no or because no prophecy, he means no true prophecy. No true prophecy was ever made by an act of human will. There's plenty of false prophecies that are being made by acts of human will, but they go nowhere. In fact, one of the consequences for a false prophet in the Old Testament was death. If what they said didn't happen, they would be put to death. So no prophecy was ever made by the act of a human will, but men were moved by the Holy Spirit. They spoke from God being moved by the Holy Spirit. What is Peter saying? Peter's saying that no prophecy of Scripture, meaning nothing that has been said in the Bible pointing to Christ, either in the Old Testament, and thereby pointing to Christ in the New Testament, no prophecy of Scripture originated in the prophet's own determination. They weren't the origin of it. They weren't the means by which it started and where it came from. Because no prophecy is of the will of man. See, the will of man can, can be the origin of a whole lot of things, but it cannot be the origin of Scripture. No, it was holy men. Holy men. Men moved by the Holy Spirit. Set apart men. Men who God had set apart for that specific task in order that they might say exactly what God wanted said. And all of that, all of that lines up entirely with the argument of Peter and what he's making back in verse 19. We have the prophetic word made more sure. We have a more sure word of prophecy that we would do well to take heed of like a light shining in a dark place. Like we would until the day comes, the morning star shining in our hearts. See, why? Somebody comes and says, why do you believe the Bible? In fact, why should you believe the Bible? Why should you continually meditate on the Bible? Why should you continually go to the Scriptures? Why should you base your entire life on the Scriptures? Why would men from old stand and be willing to be tied to a stake and have the, the flames lit at their feet, dying, standing on what the words of Scripture said? Why would anybody do that? Because... Because this prophecy that we have on our laps, this, this book that you have, has already been verified by the very fact that Jesus came. And there are eyewitnesses to that fact. But even more so, what the Scriptures say is not a simple recording of the musings of men. They weren't given to us by the musings of men. This is not some man's interpretation of the world around him. It didn't originate by the determination of men. It didn't come to us by the will of man, no. No, the Scriptures that we have were men of God that spoke the things of God as they were moved by the Spirit of God. Just like our salvation, the Scriptures are all of God. In other words, there is no stronger a foundation for our beliefs than the Scriptures. There's no stronger a foundation for our certainty than what the Bible says. Why? Because it isn't a human document. It didn't come from this world. Peter tells us right here that we have, like Paul said, the very breath of God. God has spoken to us. And it was given to us by the agency of His chosen men who were moved by Him to say exactly what He intended to say about the coming of Christ and about the salvation of those whom He chose to save and about the sin of all mankind and about the very nature and character of who He is and every other truth in the Bible.
Therefore, we can never think of this book as simply a collection of thoughts, a moralistic attempt of men to moralize society, the radical words of a band of Jewish farmers and fishermen that somehow got through the scrutiny of the wisdom of men over time. No, that's not what this is. This is the very Word of God. These men were taken hold of by the Holy Spirit. God the Spirit. In fact, the very Word here, when it says they were moved by the Holy Spirit, it's, it's, it's the whole idea of wind filling the sail of a sailboat and moving it along. All the characters of the sailboat, all the characteristics of that sailboat are still intact, still being used. The rudder on the sailboat is still being used. There's still someone driving that boat with a, with a wheel that turns that rudder. And yet in the sail is the wind of God, the, the Spirit of God filling them, moving them along so that what they do and, and how they say it and what is said is the very thing that God wanted said. They were moved along by the Holy Spirit. It was the wind in the sail of their personhood. The very message of God was spoken by the very men of God as He drove them along and they wrote, influenced by all the faculties of their own upbringings and their own personalities that did not hinder the very voice of God at all. So that what? we have right here is exactly what God wanted said. Exactly how God wanted said. Exactly meaning what God meant it to say. In fact, that is exactly the testimony of the true prophets of God in the Old Testament. The true prophets of God said things like this. They, the word of God came to me, they said. They didn't say, hey, I got something to tell you. I got some wisdom from myself and my own life I want to share with you so that your life will be better. No, they said, the word of God came to me. Now you need to hear it. They said, the word of the Lord has come to me, or thus says the Lord. That's the words of a prophet. You don't find any of those in Scripture saying, listen, this is what I think I should tell you. No, for them, even at times, it was a burden to speak what God wanted said. For a true prophet, even a true prophet sometimes understood what God would do by what he said, and they didn't want to speak it. You say, what are you talking about? Well, you remember Jonah? God had given Jonah a message to take. You go to Nineveh, you preach to Nineveh, and you preach repentance to them. And Jonah said, I, I don't want to go because I know exactly what's going to happen. When I preach your word to them, they're going to do that. They're a pagan nation. They shouldn't know you. God had to force Jonah to go. Jonah did exactly what God had said once he was forced to go, and God did exactly what he promised he would do. They repented. But the message to Jonah was a burden. It was a burden to him, just like it was to Jeremiah. Jeremiah at times said, Lord, I, 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 I don't want to say that to the people. It's not going to go well with me if I say that to the people. Sometimes the message is going to get you killed, folks. Sometimes the message that we teach, sometimes the truth that we speak is going to get us killed. I'm certainly not desiring that for any of us here in this room. But it has to be said. Why? Because this is God's message, not man's. This is God's word, not man's. And so when we come to the Word of God, we can and have a sure defense. Why do I believe what it, what it says? Because of who God is. Because of what God says. But this is just a book of men. Yeah, men moved along by God. God spoke through them, 
God used them. This is God's word, not man. We have absolute certainty that what we believe is true and right because of who gave it to us. There were eyewitness testimonies. That's great. I'm thankful that God gave us eyewitness testimonies. I'm thankful over the years that God has even done more things by way of archaeological finds and everything else to give us a verification of what he's already shown to be true and right because he said it in his word. And yet by his grace, he shows us some sense of archaeology that we go, oh, that, that testifies to the scriptures and what they say. And yet, even more than that, we know that this book is not a development of human thinking. Not a development of human thinking, because man thinks he's growing and getting better and better and better, and man would never say that he was a complete, depraved sinner. No, man's just getting better. See, what we have is the reality that the eternal God was pleased to make himself known to us and that because of sin, we cannot come to a saving knowledge of God without him. That's what God was pleased to tell us. We certainly know about the existence of God through what he's made, don't we? We know the existence of God through all his invisible attributes, he says in Romans 1, are clearly seen through what he's made. So you can look outside, you can look at the sun shining, look at the moon shining at night and the stars at night, you can look at the trees around you and the dirt that you walk on and all of the plants that you put and the growth that you have when you plant a garden, you see all the fruit of that and you can see the attributes of God in all that he's made. But you will never come to salvation. You will never know salvation without the scriptures. Why? Because they point to Christ in whom there is salvation. The scriptures certainly declare who God is by way of what he's created. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, Genesis tells us. And it tells us of his nature and character all the way through from Genesis to Revelation. And all that character is pointed at and directed at Jesus Christ who came And mankind looks outside and goes, oh, there's not a God. I reject God. I suppress that truth and unrighteousness. So let me develop another way to define my world around me. And so all the plants and the animals and trees and the world around us must have developed over millions of years of time from nothing. If they just open up the word of God, God would tell them in three seconds just how the world was made. The first chapters of Genesis. Man buys off on the philosophy that he's just an evolved being, that he's getting better and better and better. And so his morality just goes down, spiraling down worse and worse and worse and worse. So that now in Romans 1, because God has gave them over, we see the depraved mind fully on display in our world. It can't even think straight. Absolute insanity. The world in which we live has no mental capacity to make a right decision. None. They have rejected God and God said, have it your way. But we don't believe the world. We believe what the scriptures teach. We believe the words of scripture and that they have been given to us by God, the spirit and therefore, we know that Christ's coming and that all that he did is the fulfillment of what God had promised. God had said he would send a Messiah and he did that and he promised it and he fulfilled it in Christ. And that fact is a guarantee that everything else that he has said will in fact be fulfilled. Since God has fulfilled his prior word concerning Christ, he will fulfill his future word concerning Christ. Is it any wonder that the Apostle Peter in chapter 3 will say to these people about those who are trying to challenge them with the lies of the day, for when they maintain this, maintain what in chapter 3 verse 5, when they maintain that everything just seems to go on, nothing seems to change, you say Christ is coming back, and yet the world seems to go year after year after year, nothing seems to change. 
Peter says, what they failed to notice, what has escaped their notice, and he doesn't mean that by ignorance because God hasn't told them. He means because they've suppressed the truth and their unrighteousness. What's escaped them, that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water. Peter says, what has escaped them is that they deny this is God's word. They deny the truth of this. Why? Because they deny God. They deny the very existence and reality of God, and so therefore they have no, no need for the Bible, no need for the truth of it. If they even acknowledge that the Bible is something for them in some moralistic way, they try to define it the way man defines it and say, oh, love is this. They try to define their faith and their religion by the fact that they're willing to even murder an untold amount of babies on the guys that they are loving. What a lie. What an absolute lie. It escapes their notice because they deny the truth of the word of God. And so they deny the flood. They deny the worldwide flood, that the world was destroyed then. And therefore they deny what's going to happen now. That this heaven and this earth is being preserved for fire. Yet for the day of judgment and destruction of what? Ungodly men. That's why he says in verse 8, don't let this one fact escape your notice, beloved. And with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. Don't let this one fact escape your notice when you're answering people about the certainty. Don't let their denial of the reality of the word of God undermine your certainty because guess what? God is not like us. God isn't like us. He doesn't determine to operate in time like he has given us time. God isn't like us. Since God has fulfilled his word prior concerning Christ, he will fulfill his word concerning Christ in the future. And that means that Christ is coming back. Christ is coming back. And that may sound strange to the people in our world. It may sound strange as a message that we preach today, just like the flood sounded strange to those in Noah's world. Noah's preaching the judgment of God is coming every day he was building the ark and he's preaching God's judgment is coming and they laughed at him and they mocked at him and yet one day God closed the ark and the flood began why because God doesn't judge time like we judge time God says I said it it will happen I will do it Christ is coming back God has kept his word and he always and fully carries out his plan and his promises always you can rest on that. There's nothing more certain than that. Because of God and who He is, His Word is something that we can always trust. No matter who doubts it, no matter how much we're by ourselves when we're doing that, we can always trust the Word of God. We have been given great promises. Paul says, let us believe those. Peter says, let us believe those. John says, let us believe those. All the writers of Scripture say, let us believe those. Let's believe them. Let us hold to them. Let us solidify our feet in them. Let us be immovable in them, no matter what anybody else says, because it's God who has given us His Word. No prophecy is a matter of human will. These men were moved by God. They spoke from God. This is God's Word. We can stand on it. What God says He will do, He will do. When we hold to the Word of God, we are holding to Christ. He is God and there is no other. When we live by the Word of God, God is honored. And our faith is ever strengthened when we do. Ever strengthened. Beloved, we need not ever be weakened in our faith. We need not ever wonder whether what we're standing on is true or right. 
If we're standing on the word of God, rightly divided, understood as God has given it to us, we are right no matter who is standing against us. And they're coming. They're coming against us. They're coming against us. We see it. We hear it. We read about it even this morning. The sad part about that entire thing this morning, I mentioned it a little when I was praying, but is the reality that this very truth that we're even talking about this morning will infiltrate the church. That, that people will come for a time, and then the time will come when they won't endure sound doctrine anymore. They'll just begin to subtly have it undermined and undermined and undermined. They won't even be able to endure it anymore. Not because it isn't true, not because it isn't the Word of God, but because they want to have their ears tickled. They don't want to hear the truth anymore. They don't want to hear the hard stuff. They don't want to stand in that place anymore. Showing themselves to be truly who they are, those who are not converted at all. And so they accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires. And they go right back to the very thing that Peter says, we didn't come to you in that way. We didn't come to you with myths. We didn't come to you with false words. And yet, Paul says to Timothy, that's exactly what's going to happen. People are going to turn again to myths. Sobering reality. Sobering reality. You'll never turn to myths if you hold to the truth. You'll never be taken by winds of doctrine if you hold to the truth. This is the Word of God. God has given it to us. Don't ever doubt it. Don't ever doubt it. Hold to it. It will strengthen you in ways you know not of. I always wondered how the martyrs would ever be able to stand at the stake and be burned. How would anybody ever be able to do that? The only way that anyone could ever do that is when they hold to the truth that God's Word is exactly what it is, God's Word. That everything, all the precious promises that He has given to us are true and right. And that we can stand on them no matter what happens. I pray that's our heart. I pray that's our desire. Would you bow with me for a word of prayer as we thank God for what he's taught us. Lord, we are grateful. Grateful for the truth of your word. Grateful that even in these things, we, we have surety. You're such a gracious father to deal with all the little idiosyncrasies that we come to you with. The challenges of our own flesh and our own heart, the challenges that are outside of us in the world that come against us. And you are such a great and wonderful God to encourage us. Thankful for the truth of your word. Thankful that you are the God of your word, that you will never go against your very nature and character, that it's always true and right, and it's reflected for us here in your word as you prophesied concerning Christ as you fulfilled prophecy about Christ and as you will fulfill prophecy concerning Christ. So thank you for these things. Encourage us, strengthen us, and cause us by your grace and through our obedience by the power of the Spirit to walk in our faith, even in this world in which we live. Lord, we pray that our testimony would be clear concerning Christ and that you would be honored by it. Thank you for saving us. In his name we pray. Amen.